Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. One of the reasons that I most enjoy the ongoing study is demonstrated by a quote from one of the textbooks that I had to read last spring. Uh, In the textbook, they give an example that explains or kind of makes sense of an Old Testament story, Genesis 15, verses 9 through 21. It's a book on hermeneutics or interpretation, and this is what the author says. He says, consider the ritual that's recorded in Genesis 15, 9 through 21. God making his covenant, making his commitment with Moses or, or with Abraham, his promises, both of land and descendants. Abraham, then, he sacrifices animals. And what he does in this sacrifice is unique in some ways to us. When we think of sacrifice, we think altar. We think putting the animal on the altar. That is not what Abram does here. What Abram does here is he takes an animal and literally cuts it down the middle and lays the halves out on either side. And he does this with a couple of animals and he lays them there. And after he lays them there during the day, the birds of prey are trying to get to these animals to eat them. So Abram's out there and he's chasing them off. And at night, God comes to him. And God comes in the form of a smoking fire pot. And that smoking fire pot passes through the middle of these animal halves. Now, when we read that story, for us as Americans, what does that mean? Not a thing. I mean, it's actually, it's kind of crazy. It sounds nutty, right? What was Abraham doing? And what was God doing? Well, this is the best part, so listen. In Abraham's time, two parties making a legal agreement in the covenant would sacrifice animals and cut them in two. Often it was the weaker party or weaker partner in that covenant agreement that was made with a cesarean or a leader with a vassal, the weaker one, and the vassal, the weaker one, would pass through the two halves as a means, as a visible picture, a visible commitment, that if he should fail to keep the covenant, his end of the agreement, this, the animals that are cut in half, this is what would happen to him. If he doesn't agree, or if he doesn't keep it, this is what, he, he's going to get this. But here's what's striking about this passage. Who passed through the middle of the animals? It wasn't Abram. With the smoking pot, it's God. God passes through the animals, which is a visible manifestation of God in this text. And he goes between it. And in essence, here's what he's saying. The Lord passes between the the pieces and an accurate interpretation would be to highlight how this act communicates that the Lord is the one who agrees to take on the punishment of Abraham should the covenant break. 
Now that's interesting. That's really interesting. Fast forward to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 34. Now this is three chapters after the new covenant declaration. The prophecy of the new covenant by Jeremiah. Three chapters later, Jeremiah tells the people, verses 17 to 20. And we won't read it. But he says, it's based on this covenant with Abraham. That extends to the people, that extends to God's people. That is referenced for the motivation that God now is going to pour out his punishment, his judgment on them. Why? Because they've broken the covenant. And this, I think, is also the point that the preacher is making for us in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 16. Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17, I think, is referencing a broken covenant. Because the covenant is broken, someone has to die. Someone has to pay because this covenant is broken. God's already made the agreement, who will pay? He will pay. And Jesus is the payment. Now, now look at this. We'll, we'll look at this more in a minute. But I want you to see with me today as we walk through this. And I want you to catch this again. The sufficient sacrifice of Christ frees you and me from condemnation and allows us to draw near to God. Listen, the reality is that under this old system, under this old covenant relationship, there is a divide. There is a separation from the very presence of God. And it cannot be managed. It cannot be brought near without a mediator without someone to go between. This is the role of the earthly high priest. And yet we already know, as described by the preacher in Hebrews, the earthly priest, he's falling short. He can't do it. He goes in and he has to offer a sacrifice for himself before he can offer a sacrifice for the people. So his falls short. But Jesus, his, is sufficient. It's enough. And it's enough to be offered once, one time. That's it. This will be the point throughout. Now remember, as the author of Hebrews writes, Hebrews is a unique letter in that it is primarily, it's a sermon. It begins as a sermon. It ends as a letter. He does sign off chapter 13, verses 22 to 25. He says, essentially, goodbye, right? Continue to grow. Uh, learn from these things. He challenges them many times, really, in chapter 13. But primarily, he is focused throughout this letter on the, suprem the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus and his ministry and his priesthood and his sacrifice and his work on our behalf. And we see it throughout. And as believers, he calls us throughout to cling to the hope that is found in Christ by faith. And encourage one another to do the same. We need one another. Right? We need one another to be encouraged. To continue to carry on for Christ. 
So today our passage continues this discussion, and as we already mentioned a couple minutes ago, we're focusing on those three things, sanctuary, sacrifice, and covenant. We're finishing that second kind of stanza uh, here in verses 16 to 22. That stanza really covers, looks at the covenant, then we'll move again to the sanctuary, and then we'll start into that next section on sacrifice. And we'll stop there and finish that, Lord willing, next week. So again, as we walk through this, what I want you to get What I want you to see is the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Why? Because it frees you. You're free from condemnation. And now because you're free from condemnation, you're free to draw near to God through Christ. So as we begin, the first thing that we see is the freedom from condemnation. Verses 16 to 22, the freedom from condemnation. Now, All of this discussion that we are about to walk through is based on the covenant aspect of the work of Jesus. And the preacher makes this fascinating point regarding the old covenant. So this is not new. He has been doing this. He has been comparing in essence and contrasting old and new, old and new. But he's going to continue to flesh that out and maybe here more fully than he has in the previous section. So again, verses 16 and 17 together, and it's one sentence in the original. It's not two. It's not two sentences. It's one idea. The necessity of death is because of a broken covenant. So literally, verse 16, we could read like this. For where a covenant or where a broken covenant is. Now that makes sense. Where a broken covenant is, there must of necessity be the death. You see that? You see the connection back to Genesis 15. Because of the covenant and because of the agreement, somebody on one side or the other has to die. Well, God already agreed that that would be him, right? Verse 17, same thing. For this broken covenant or this covenant is valid only when men die now or are dead. Now, listen for a second and think about it. If there's no consequence for breaking the covenant, do you truly even have a covenant? Right? This is one of the greatest ironies to me in the modern day world. If you follow sports at all, it's really contracts have almost no meaning. A guy gets within two years of his contract and he wants to renegotiate. He wants more, right? Or decides, I don't like this team anymore. I want to go to a different team. Well, that's not a contract, right? And some of our difficulty in comprehending some of this reality is the hard and fast nature of a contract. Uh, It will make more sense to you if you consider it as a contract with your bank, right? A mortgage. They're not so quick to let you out of that contract, right? (laughs) They don't want to renegotiate and give you a better deal. You know, in reality, if you tried to renegotiate right now, you probably wouldn't be happy with your rate, you know, right? That's how a contract often works. It's, it's not like it is many times in the public eye. Well, that's exactly what's going on with this agreement. So the debate is, should this be translated will and testament versus covenant? And that's why we went with the NAS today, because it alone translates it covenant. And I felt like that was important. There are other pieces that I maybe wouldn't have done that way in this particular translation. However, that one was significant enough 
that this is the one that we went with. There's great debate over this issue. There's great debate over this understanding of will and testament versus covenant. But I think the broken covenant makes sense. So if you look at, even from the context, back at verse 15, it specifically notes the transgressions that occur under the old covenant. Well, how are those transgressions going to be addressed? He's already going to tell us in verses 1 to 4, we'll get there in a minute, he's already going to tell us that that old system doesn't really purify, cleanse, release anyone from sin. It was a picture, but it doesn't release you. So this old system was broken. This old covenant was broken from the outset. The section that immediately follows, verses 18 to 22, it also addresses the first covenant. And it addresses the beginning of that first covenant, the inauguration of it, the regular exercise of these points, the necessity of death for breaking the covenant. So if you break the covenant, you're going to die. Now listen to me. That's in essence exactly what Moses is doing. We'll get there in a second. Verse 21, I think it is. Verse 20, or 19. Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people. Why would you do that? Because in essence, it's the same agreement. If you break the covenant, your blood's going to have to be spilled. If you refuse to obey God, you'll have to pay with your life. This is the arrangement from the beginning. This is the way that this covenant works. There's just this feeling of the necessity of death for forgiveness because of the transgression of the covenant. It's almost as if there's this understanding, you're going to break the covenant. How do we fix that? How do we ultimately, finally, completely address those sins, transgressions, those times that you break the covenant? So again, verse 16, a broken covenant demands the death of the covenant maker. If there is no death, then the covenant truly is just, it's invalid. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. So the preacher, I think here, is arguing what he has consistently argued throughout Hebrews. That the first covenant, it holds with it a curse of death for anyone who breaks it. You're going to die if you break the covenant. Christ, he takes that curse. Jesus, it tells us, becomes a curse for us. Thus, he frees us from the first covenant. He frees us from the weight, the death, the curse of death that we rightly deserve. And instead, he provides a new and a better way, a better covenant, a better arrangement, right? Now, in verses 18 through 21, then, we kind of walk through a little bit of history. And you can see, I think, in these words in Hebrews, you can see the echo of Exodus 24 and Moses sprinkling the blood on the book of the covenant and the people and the vessels and the tabernacle. Now, all of that is a reminder, again, that likely they're going to break the covenant and blood's going to have to be spilled to pay the penalty. Moses recites in verse 20, and it's a, it's a quote from Exodus, but he says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, if you go back and you look at Jesus in the upper room, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, 
The words Jesus recites are very similar, and yet he says, my blood is shed for you uh, as this new covenant arrangement, right? So there's this echo even of the words of Christ. In verse 22, the preacher kind of brings all of this to a head, and he says, again, according to the law, you can say almost, almost all things are cleansed with blood. And therefore, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or release or pardon. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be this alternate that stands in the place of, that gives his life as a sacrifice for us. And obviously, I think it makes sense that how could an animal stand in your place? Again, he'll make that point in verses 1 to 4. But because of the violation of God's covenant, blood had to be shed. And Jesus is the one who sheds his blood. His self-sacrifice. And listen to me, I've noted that for the last several weeks, and I don't know that you have observed my noting it. But Jesus' sacrifice was his own. It was the self-sacrifice. Jesus willingly lays down his life. We'll talk about that again in a few moments. But his self-sacrifice frees us from the guilt of our sin. Ever felt that weight of your sin? You ever felt that flood of, I did the wrong thing? I remember those feelings many times going in to see the principal or my father, right? There was this flood you ever felt that? You could, at least in my mind, I could call it the principal syndrome. Some of you never experienced that. I, I know what it is, right? The guilt of your sin, but also the power of your sin. The reality is, from time to time, we are enslaved, it feels like, to sin. It's going to win every time. It dominates what we do. It dominates how we live. It dominates our time. It dominates our responses. And here's the reality. Jesus died to rip that power away from sin. You don't have to yield to sin. You don't have to live under the dominion of sin any longer. But not only that, he removes the penalty, the just penalty of sin. You deserve to die for sin. Jesus took that. He takes that penalty. This sacrifice is sobering if you consider it. And this is the new arrangement. The blood of the old covenant brought condemnation for disobedience. And only the blood of this new covenant through Jesus can truly release. That's what forgiveness is. You are released. You are free from guilt and free from sin through the work of Christ. Now, through the sacrifice of Jesus, this new relationship, new covenant, new arrangement begins. It exists. 
And because of it, you are freed from the condemnation of your sin and the power of your sin, the penalty of your sin. You no longer have to carry the remnants of it, the reminders of it, because you're covered through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, here's the truth. Are you living in light of those realities? Folks, so many times, if we are not careful, what dominates us is maybe our sin struggle. Or maybe the weight of our guilt. I failed. I'm not what I should be. I, I, I haven't done what I should do. I know there are things that, that, that should be different in my life. We don't have to live with the weight of that because of the work of Christ. We're, we're freed. Jesus took the penalty for breaking the covenant. Through Jesus, you are released. You're cleansed. You're pardoned through his work on the cross. Now, I hope we can see clearly the impact of this new covenant. But this new covenant goes into and, and drives again the discussion that will begin now kind of this third stanza. The sanctuary begins this discussion and he very briefly addresses it just in verse 23 and 24. But again, this sanctuary addresses the presence, his presence before God for you and for me. Look again at what he says, verse 23. So therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in heaven, in the heavens, to be cleansed with these, with his blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into the true one, which is what? It's heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So a couple of things. Again, we're, we're starting the discussion over and beginning with the sanctuary. And the preacher very succinctly describes this heavenly sanctuary and Jesus going there for us. The heavenly things that are purified, there's great debate and issue over what are these heavenly things? Up to nine interpretations. You know how many of those we're going to discuss? One. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're not going to get bogged down in that. Here's what it is, I think. Here's what he's describing. He's describing this place the purification of the people of God and the place then that we can commune with God being heaven and that communion is possible through cleansing the cleansing Jesus provides and through the ministry through the presence of Jesus with God the sacrifice of Christ opens access to God we can now draw near to him with a free, released, as he addressed earlier in chapter 9, conscience. There's no longer this weight of our sin. We have been cleansed, forgiven. We're free. So the sacrifice of Jesus makes this objective difference, an objective change in the relationship that humanity can have with God. Before Jesus, we don't have free access. Before Jesus, there's this barrier. Before Jesus, you have the Holy of Holies and only the high priest can go in. But now in Christ, we 
you can draw near to God because of his sacrifice. So heaven is the true sanctuary. Why? Because it's the place where God dwells. The divine presence of God is there. So that's what we're describing in this true sanctuary. Jesus enters this for us to appear in the presence of God for us. He goes for us. He stays for us. He's there for us. He represents us. And it demonstrates a couple of very important things. Number one, Jesus doesn't need to sacrifice for himself in order to go. That's going to come back up again in a minute. Jesus doesn't have to sacrifice for himself in order to enter because he's right. He's perfect. He's never sinned. Unlike the earthly high priest, remember. And the effective ministry for us uh, is being maintained, being done by Christ. And remember, it's not as if he is wildly out of control trying to keep up with millions of believers across the earth. John's sin today, or Sally's sin today, or Susie, look at her, yeah, she's a mess, forgive her. It's not as if there's this courtroom docket and every single moment he's pleading. No, listen, his sacrifice and entrance, that's enough. He's pled your case. It's done. It's done. He's not frantically trying to argue for your rightness, because his is enough. His settles the case. So the preacher again moves from the sanctuary to the sacrifice. Finally, and this is a large, large section. We'll start it today. We will not finish it today. But the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 kind of go together. Now again, chapter breaks are not inspired. We've talked about that many, many times. The beginning of this addresses again the all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus in opposition to the ongoing sacrifices necessary under the Old Covenant. So again, this is the difference. We're we're comparing and contrasting the two. And you can see this opposition in the absolute, unrepeatable sacrifice of Jesus. Once for all is how many translations actually lay it out. And the reason they say it is not because that's in the original. The original is once. But the once for all kind of gives that impression. This is literally unrepeatable. There would be no need to do it ever again. It's done. It's finished. As Jesus said on the cross. You can see the once for all nature of this sacrifice right away in verses 25 and 26. Look at what he says. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often. Notice carefully, often and often. They're going to be contrasted with another word in just a second. Watch. Since the foundation of the world, literally, he's saying he'd have to sacrifice if it wasn't enough, if this one wasn't sufficient, if it didn't need to be done over and over, he'd had to do this since the beginning of time. From eternity past, he would have had to start being sacrificed over and over and over and over and over again. Often. But he says instead, verse 26, but now once. 
Once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to what? Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Notice that. By the sacrifice of himself. You see what I've been saying to you for the last several weeks? The self-sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus did this. He willingly himself went to the cross and died for you. Died for me. It's unthinkable in so many ways. So he begins in verse 25 with this really, in many ways, beautiful transition to the self-sacrifice of Jesus, which contrasts with those of the former high priests. Jesus didn't need to offer himself over and over and over and over again, yearly, regularly, right? And yearly and yearly, that comes up in verse 25. It'll come up again in chapter 10, verse 1. It's kind of framing those two discussions. Jesus didn't need to do this yearly. The old covenant, it did need to do it yearly. All the time. And that yearly sacrifice specifically being addressed is the day of atonement. The day that this sacrifice was made for all the people of Israel together. Jesus doesn't need to do that. Instead, verse 26, we know that Jesus, he didn't offer himself since the foundation of the world. He didn't need to do that from eternity past. And here's one of the things that I want you to note. There is this slight uh, case that the preacher continues to build. Because in essence, by saying Jesus, had he needed to be sacrificed often, he could have started doing that before the foundation of the world. Why? Because he's eternal. He's always been. And eternality is an attribute that only God himself can have. So you see how the preacher gets that in there, right? Jesus is unique. He is the eternal son of God. He has always been. He will always It implicitly affirms his eternality. But he goes on and he says it's offered once. And I love this. Our our, our speaker last week in his commentary, he literally describes this word as this. It's an understood, unrepeatable event. You read that and it makes sense. That's not getting done again. It's done once. Once. His sacrifice was sufficient. Once for all. It's consummated of, or it's consummation of the ages. Now when you read that, you think, how is the sacrifice of Jesus this consummation of the ages? What's he talking about? Well, the idea of that word is completion or close or climax, as one translation happen, happens to, to put it. It literally is the idea that his coming made that time the time of fulfillment. This is the climax Because he came. And literally from that time on, we are in the last days. And that's why our New Testament authors describe it that way so many times. The purpose for his coming is stated. Literally, we have the the reasoning, the motivation for his coming. What does he say? To put away sin. And he did it. He accomplished the goal. His purpose in being revealed, his purpose in being manifested is to abolish, to destroy sin. And Jesus accomplished the goal. He completely defeated each reality of sin. The guilt, the power, the penalty of sin. All of it. 
He defeats every aspect of sin by a sacrifice. By himself, his sacrifice, the self-sacrifice of Jesus for us. He offered himself willingly for you. I love that. He wasn't forced. He didn't do this because somebody twisted his arm. He gave his life for you. Verses 27 and 28, the preacher goes on. And he says, And as much as it is appointed for men, people, humanity, to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. Now, verse 27 and 28, once again, they go together. Many times when you've heard verse 27 and 28, you hear it as, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this is judgment. And so the verse is about what? Death and judgment. Now, in a sense it is, but that's not the preacher's point. The preacher is not referencing necessarily death and judgment. What he's saying is, that's the normal human course. That is not the normal course for Jesus. Right? He did die once, but he's not going to judgment. You know what he's going to do? He's going to come back and complete the work of salvation. That's what's coming next. And when he comes the second time, there's no need to deal with sin. Why? Because he did that once for all. It's finished. It's done. He doesn't have to address sin again. Now, What's interesting is, by implication, the preacher does know that the reality of judgment awaits every single one of us. All of us will stand in judgment one day, whether as a believer giving account for the way that we've lived or as an unbeliever because we've rejected the truth, the offering of Jesus, the sacrifice that's available. All of us will stand before God one day and give account. Are you ready for that day? You don't have to wait. You can be ready now. Are you ready for that day? Verse 25 or verse 28 again, the sacrifice of Christ, it's once. And the emphasis again is on this unrepeatable event. Jesus is not coming a second time to address it. He's not coming again to pay. He's coming the second time to finish this work. And he says in the middle there that he came, he, offered one, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. One commentator notes that in many ways, this is very similar. The use of many here is a reference to all, but it is as in, in opposition to Jesus himself. The, the writer, the speaker here is not speaking of those who can receive or will receive those who will respond to the death of Christ, he simply means that Jesus died for others. He did not die for himself. Jesus' death was not for him. He didn't deserve it. He didn't need it. His death was for you and for me. This is the emphasis that he's trying to make. And this work, this work that he has accomplished should cause us to eagerly wait for his return, long to see him again. He transitions to the second side of the discussion. So first is the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. The second is the insufficiency of this old covenant. The inability of this old 
arrangement. Our rescue from sin is available through Christ. It's not through this old covenant. So the insufficiency of these animal sacrifices, you can see from the very beginning, he says, again, for the law, since it had only a, has only a shadow of good of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never be the same sacrifices or by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So he literally says, listen, the, the sacrifices that were yearly being offered, they never could accomplish what they were ultimately intended to do. The idea of the word perfect there is to bring something to its intended goal. The reality is those sacrifices could never bring the people to the intended goal, which is what? To draw near to God. Listen to me. One of the critical pieces throughout Hebrews is this emphasis of drawing near to God. That's why Jesus died. Folks, do you understand how absurd it is for someone to say, I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. But I don't really have a lot to do with him. I casually attend church when I want to, when I'm free, when it's convenient. But I don't live my life for him. Listen to me. That was never the point. The point was never for Jesus to die so that in a sense you could have some kind of insurance from hell. The point was so you could draw near to God. Do you understand how absurd it is to claim a relationship with Jesus and put everything else ahead of him? That doesn't make sense. The purpose is so you can draw near. Are you drawing near today because of Christ? You can. You should. Are you helping others to draw near? Are you ministering to others and encouraging them to draw near through Christ? This is the goal for the worshiper to be able to draw near to God. The old system couldn't accomplish that. These yearly sacrifices didn't accomplish that. Why not? Great question. Look at verse 2 and 3. Look what he says. Here's why. Here's why it doesn't work. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed or released or freed, would no longer have the consciousness of sins? No, but instead, those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a reminder of sin year after year. You literally go to the temple, to the tabernacle to have your sins covered, to have your sins atoned for. And all it does is remind you of how exceedingly sinful you are. And as you walk away, is your conscience truly cleansed? No. Because the blood of that bull, the blood of that goat, the blood of that bird, that cereal offering, none of it, none of it can truly cleanse you. And so there's just this reminder. That wasn't enough. I'm not right. I can't draw near. Look at my sin. Look at the weight. All the time. This constant weight of sin. And so the conclusion that he brings us to is in verse 4. 
the logical conclusion, and he uses this word impossible again. He only uses it again four times. Chapter 6 twice, here once, chapter 11 once. You heard about that one last week. Here's the third one, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It can't take them away. They're a picture of this ultimate sacrifice that would take them away. The consummation of the ages when God himself is manifested in the flesh. Jesus comes and lives and dies this sacrificial death. But that's it. They're a picture of that. They can't remove a thing. They just bring it up over and over and over and over again. It's like salt in the wound, isn't it? Nothing less than the precious cleansing blood of Jesus could take away, remove sins. And Jesus did. Jesus accomplished our redemption. He accomplished it by willingly offering himself as a sacrifice in your place and in mine. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Remember our greater context of Hebrews. Why is Paul writing? He is writing, not Paul. Why is the preacher writing? He is writing to encourage these believers to persevere. Why? Because Jesus is better. You see it? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than animal sacrifice. He's better than the law. He's better than the old covenant. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. He's better than all the high priests that ever served. He's even better than the whole Levitical priesthood. Jesus is better. Persevere. Be faithful. Draw near. Right? Because Jesus is better. So you see this... uh, the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. It alone frees you from condemnation and offers you the opportunity to draw near to God. But here's the wrinkle today. You cannot draw near if you have never placed your faith in Jesus alone. If you have never placed your faith in the finished work of Christ, his self-sacrifice for you, you can't draw near. Jesus is the only way to draw near to God. There's a story told back in the days of the Depression. A Missouri man named John Griffith, he was a controller of a great railroad drawbridge that would run across the Mississippi Mississippi River. One day in the middle of the summer, 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, with him. And at noon, John Griffith, he, he put the bridge up so that the ships could pass through underneath. And then time passed quickly with him and his son. They were eating lunch and playing around. And suddenly he was startled. Uh, He heard the shriek of a train whistle and realized he needed to put that that bridge back down. He quickly looked at, at his watch. He noticed it was the 107 coming from Memphis. It had probably somewhere around 400 passengers on the train. It was roaring towards this bridge that is standing straight up in the air. So he leaped up and he went to the observation deck. He ran to the control tower. He went to pull that lever to put it down. And there suddenly it caught his eye. And a knot jumped into his throat. There was his son Greg stuck in the gears 
of that mighty bridge. If he pulled that lever, his son would die. If he didn't, 400 people on that train would die. So as most of you have heard this story many times, he pulled the lever, he lost his son, and as that train went whistling by, he looked in the window and saw people, windows and saw people who couldn't care less about the sacrifice that he had just made of his son. Several months ago, my wife and I, we watched a documentary, believe it or not, on the gospel. And there's a debate on the documentary. And one of the things that's used in that documentary is that illustration. And the one side argues that that illustration is cruel. It's mean of the father to pull the lever on his son and to equate that with God and the son is just horrific. Well, here is the problem. The truth is, according to the author of Hebrews, the illustration to truly be accurate would demand that little Greg in the gears would call out from below and say, Dad, pull the lever. I'll give my life. See the difference? That's what Jesus did for you. His self-sacrifice can make you right, and it's enough. It's enough. It's enough to sustain you for what you're going through. It's enough to give you grace, to understand that the sin you might be struggling with today does not have power over you. It is not in control because of Jesus. You are free. You're free from the power. You're free from the penalty. You're free from the guilt of your own failure, your own shortcomings, your own faults because of this sacrifice. Rejoice in it and draw near to God. The truth is that's hard. It's hard as life comes at us day after day. It's hard as things happen that we don't expect or we don't like. So we need grace. And there is grace for you and for me today.